This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new three-pack of digital displays from Midcontinent. And what's going down at Wheels Up, Ian? A window that can open on your Piper. It's a reality with a new STC. The FAA is easing mental health barricades. Also, stupid airplane tricks. Someone's going to jail. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk live from AOPA? I'm ready. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulips. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Our guest is Robert Rose. He's the CEO of Reliable Robotics, which is a company you probably haven't heard of, but I think you're going to hear a lot more from, David. Yeah, Ian. They uh, jumped on the scene several years ago because they did some autonomy in a Cessna Skyhawk, and then they upped the ante and converted a Cessna Caravan for autonomous flight. But the eye is on safety and how it could help us as GA pilots. Oh, okay. That's cool. That's a, that's a neat conversation. And, and it's great that we had them on because they just actually – had some success. They demonstrated the technology with the Air Force, which is, I guess, ultimately where it's going to go, right? That's where part of that technology would go. But as Robert Rose will tell us later, and you need to stand by for that interview, he is hoping that we can have some Autoland technology in your Cessna 172 oh, cool. from this program. Awesome. All right, cool. Hey, speaking of the cool future stuff, Midcontinent, which is a really well-respected company, they do a lot of cool stuff with like batteries and battery backups and stuff like that. They have just come out with a three-pack of digital standby instruments called, it's based on their Flex line. They call it the Flex three-pack. And these are really nice two-inch instruments that have a lot of capabilities. Digital instruments, Ian, and they could slide right in the panel like you said. Now, no price as of yet has mm -hmm. been released for this. Uh, but all three instruments are supported by an approved model list, an AML. Mm -hmm. So it's likely to cover about 180 different aircraft models, including... Your Cessna 172 nice, and maybe, nice. the, maybe Probably, the Piper yeah. Tri-Pacer. Yeah. We'll see. Yep. So, actually, Cirrus does a really nice job. You can see kind of what backup instruments can do on their lower panel, right? Okay. So, you've got the digital displays up there with the Garmin and even the old Avidyne. And then that nice three-pack, boom, right in front of you, right below Just that. Just in case you need it. Yep. It's right there. Yep. And so, Midcontinent's offering even an alternative to the conventional three-pack backup in this, in this digital three-pack. And like we said, they, they make some really nice stuff. So this would be a good option for folks when they're doing the shopping around. Absolutely. And they're looking at the at the flex attitude indicator, flex counter drum encoding altimeter, mm -hmm. 
and the Flex Airspeed Indicator. So those are your three instruments that you would definitely need for backup. And they look really slick. They are, yeah. It's an easy, easy to read display. That's yeah. what appeals to me. Yeah, that's right. And like you said, I wish we could give folks a price, but we can't. But uh, reach out to them, and they'll give you one, I'm sure. So, okay, wheels up. These guys flew onto the scene, what, about 10 years ago? Right. You see them in airports all around the country with their sort of iconic King Air 350s and that really cool blue and white paint job. Yeah. They've shockingly, I would say, well, maybe not so shockingly, surprisingly, they've hit a bit of a, uh, a speed bump. Their stock is way down, and now the CEO, Kenny Dichter, is out. And Kenny has been on Hangar Talk before quite some time ago. We mm-hmm. interviewed him. But, yeah, he uh, co-founded the company, and he's out. He's got what I would call a golden parachute. It's a oh real gosh. lucrative deal. Oh, yeah. we got to go through that because this okay. – maybe in a second. But, yeah, that's it's incredible. But what's uh, interesting to me, you know, I cover a little bit of golf and sports when I'm not here at AOPA, and a lot of the golfers use wheels up, especially mm. uh, flying to the Masters tournaments and the PGA, which is going on as we record this. The golfers used to – quite a few of them used to fly themselves. Mm. But it's a better deal, I think, to yeah. have a, like sort of a fly share type operation like Wheels Up. Yeah. And as you mentioned, they fly mainly King Air 350s, some of the Cessna Citation jets, mm-hmm. and a few other models. Yeah. They had some investment opportunities that came in from Delta, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they, they basically merged with Delta mm-hmm. Private Jets. Exactly. Yeah. So they had a lot of money there and a lot of money floating around, but surprisingly, Over the past couple of years, the stock went from, uh, I want to say it was $10 a share to like $0.28 a share. Ouch. So, yeah, yeah, $10 in July of 2021 to just $0.28 at last check. And that's via Brian Foley, who we sometimes Mm -hmm. call on during the Gamma reports to – to put a fine tooth on what's going on with yeah. the uh, with the aviation industry. Yeah, so Wheels Up really, I think, represents that. You know, they're the biggest of the subscription models, and and like you said, I, I saw it's funny a couple of snide comments online that it's like, wow, you spend all your marketing money in NASCAR, and it's like, and you're not doing so well, shocker, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, I get it, but it was effective. Probably a lot of those are what they are, as you mentioned, is probably some trading going on there with they take the drivers around in exchange for some advertising. But anyway, let's talk about the golden parachute because this is is incredible. And I suppose is a nod to his long history with the company and helping to start it and everything. So this came from an SEC filing. He gets his $950,000 salary for two years. Okay. He'll remain a director on the company board. Okay. A lump sum payment of $3 million. Nice. Plus an annual bonus based on the number of days he was employed. It keeps going. Healthcare coverage, which is, it's 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 kind of funny that um, that's a perk when you have a three million dollar lump sum. But uh, we know the cost of healthcare in this country. Yes, that's important. And then two hundred hours a year, two hundred hours of flight time and <laughs> in, in a in a wheels up aircraft. Oh my god! A King Air can get you there pretty quick. I'd yeah. say you could circle the globe a few times. I with mean, that. holy cow! It's like he's going to have lots of chances to spend his three million bucks. Right? Um, yeah, that's so. Uh, you know, a lot was made of that too. It's like how they can't be doing so badly when they give him that sort of a, a package. And the thing is, they are revenues are up, but they are. Um, but so are expenses. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. In the figures that Brian Foley cited, the uh, revenues were an impressive, he says, $1.58 billion in 2022. But there was a staggering, and that's a quote from Brian mm-hmm. Foley, staggering $555 million loss. Yeah. So that's uh, there's a, that's a lot of up and down to yeah. be happening there within a short time. Yeah, that's true. 
All right. Hey, bringing it back down to earth, back down to the light GA world and an openable window for your Pipers and Bonanzas and some Moonies. This is like a gift from God for some people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially if you fly in the southeast yeah. in the summertime. Yeah. So Jim Moore wrote a story about uh, an STC that a guy's developed. I think Norm Ellis. Yep. Thank you. And he was a, he worked for Mooney a while back, so he knows a bit about windows that yeah. need to op- be open. Yeah. Uh, my favorite part about this story is Norm clearly does not like to sweat in airplanes because he talks multiple times yeah. about suffering. He's like busted open the, <laughs> the, the window in a Cessna 182 during his Civil Air Patrol days. That is yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. But um, he understands that the GA cockpit can be uh, tight and hot. Uncomfortable. You know, very Especially uncomfortable. Especially for our passengers. Yeah. 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 So it's it's really nicely priced, five hundred bucks. Five hundred bucks I can afford mm-hmm. for an STC. The yeah. Piper Tri Pacer has a little vent window on the left side. The right side is a door that opens. Oh, that's nice. And with a window in it. And according to the documents that I'm reading, if you have a window vent window mm-hmm. in a window, then you could expand it to this STC and make the whole window. The yeah. openable window. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, the Cessna windows, obviously, most of them have the little stop where it's like they kind of vent open a little bit. This well, you can take like, that screw out, Ian. And well, you can. This, yeah, that's and true. You, that's what we do for photos. You know take that. that little screw out, that little and arm. Tape and it up to exactly the Exactly, yeah. tape it up. This is the same idea, but it goes down. And so, like, the whole side of the door, you know, I mean, that's a big window. It just it flops down. You can ride in style there in the taxi with your arm out. But let's get down to the dollars and cents. Okay, 500 bucks for the um, STC, but he estimates it's about 20 to 30 hours to get one of these installed, you know, for instance, on a Mooney or a, mm-hmm. a Bonanza or Piper, the PA24, PA32 line. So to me, that's another two or three thousand dollars. Yeah. Plus, you got to find the parts, uh, an old window, an old door, something yeah. like that yeah. from a salvage yard. But that does, but it means it's doable. Yeah, it's a cool option. I like it. So, yeah, uh, yeah maybe a lot, there'll be a lot less pilots sweating in the near future. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and we'll be right back. All right, so I want to talk about th- this is something that I think you and I agree on and, and feel strongly about, and a lot of pilots do. It's finally getting some more attention, and that's mental health. Sure. Pilot mental health and, and being kind of open and upfront about that. As we know, a lot of pilots don't get the treatment they need, especially in the case of mental health, for fear of losing their medical certificates. Right. right. Yeah. In fact, you know what? A while back, I was thinking about this. You know, I'm, I'm happily married. Uh, my wife, Lisa, and I, we get along fine. But if you had to do some marriage counseling, yes. go, sometimes, go through a divorce. Yeah, yes. sometimes yeah. That's, uh, that will lead to some uh, mental health challenges. And then if you see a professional, you know, pilots are just very wary about that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So Dr. Susan Northrup, she's the federal air surgeon. She's also a pilot. Mm-hmm. She's been doing the best she can, I think, to kind of push that division forward a little bit in the FAA. More exposure, more more openness. Yep. So since 2010, there have been four, they call them SSRIs. These are a specific type of antidepressant. Four of them have been approved for use. Now there's talk that they're going to approve seven more, which is a really nice step forward. That's a lot. That's a, so you're adding about two thirds more to that to mm-hmm. that list. Yeah. One of the notes that uh, Lillian uh, Guile wrote in the story is that currently 30 to 40 percent of applicants reviewed by the FAA have a mental health component, hmm. yet only 0.1 to 0.2 percent are denied certification or recertification. So it seems like there's a little bit of uh, of openness already, some transparency. Yeah. 
But 30 to 40 percent of applicants had a mental health component. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Just, it's interesting. That's it kind is. of a high number. It is high, higher than I thought it would be. It's, you know what it speaks to, I, I got to say, is – and Gary Crump says the same thing. He said, you know, they – Gary runs the medical certification at department AOPA, at AOPA. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I see. Sure. And they talk – he talks all the time about how, you know, people complain about the process. And it's true. It can be arduous. But he says, you know, in the end, most medicals do end up getting approved. Yeah. It might take a while. Yeah. So I would say it's a matter of, you know, if, you, if you're avoiding health care because of your medical, that's never a good idea. And so call this, the staff at the medical certification Absolutely. department. Absolutely. And ask, okay, you know, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about seeing a therapist. I'm thinking about going to the cardiologist or whatever. And, you know, what is it going to mean? It's always good to talk to a staff person and the PIC and the medical side. I've done it before, Ian. They are geniuses. Yeah. And they will help you navigate these, these sometimes difficult waters. Yeah. Yep. So they can tell you, okay, this is what's certified, you know, this is what gets certified, this is what doesn't, here's the documentation you'll ultimately need. And I think you, most people find that it is possible. So, yeah. Well, and I'm sure we'll hear more from Susan Northrup at EA Air Venture. She had a, a gathering uh, of the minds last year at Air Venture, and uh, I'm assuming she'll be there again. She's pretty visible there. Yeah. And and like you said, a pilot and uh, someone who's good to know and someone who's on our side. Yeah. Amen. All right. Hey, all right, David, we got to finish by talking about what everybody's talking about, okay. which is stupid airplane tricks. Trevor Jacob, you'll remember him. He's the guy who didn't say that he jumped out of an airplane intentionally, but it was clear to everybody that he did. Mm-hmm. Skydived out of his own airplane, a Taylorcraft, I believe. That's right. Essentially for his own self-promotion. Yeah, all right, over California. Yeah. And uh, and people would were scrutinizing that video that he published because there was there were definitely emergency landing areas below him. We talked about that on a previous show, but he is now in a boatload of trouble. <laughs> yes, they have thrown the book at him. Well, he destroyed the aircraft, oh, first of all. He was directed by the NTSB and the FAA to preserve the airplane, take investigators to where it was and he cut it up in the in pieces and uh, disposed of it on the uh, you know on the airport site which is amazing that's amazing i mean it's, it's a blatant incredible. disregard for uh for what you're supposed to do yeah uh, for for the legal side of things yeah so th- obviously they're going to take a certificate because of his the fact that he jumped out of a perfectly good airplane and let it mm-hmm. crash to the ground okay that's one thing it's interesting, though, if you read some of the comments online of finding that people, they're not digging deeper into the story. They think he's getting prison time just for that. And that's not, I don't think, the case. Right. Exactly what you talked about, which is the fraud that he perpetrated yeah. afterwards by right. literally cutting up the airplane into pieces and putting it in a separate garbage yeah. bins. Yeah, and he's he's going to get it. The story that we have says that he's going to at least, that Nikki Britton wrote, he's going to at least get two years in federal yes. prison. Now, he could get up to 20, yeah. if I read that correctly. Yeah. Yeah, so he pled guilty. He uh, obstructed a federal investigation, allegedly uh, obstructed a federal investigation. You know, that comes with the 20-year maximum federal yeah. sentence. Yes. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Wow. And, and and the fact that he was supposed to take folks or at least say, hey, where this wreckage is, but yet he got a helicopter. He and a bud got a helicopter. They airlifted it out. They uh, transported uh, the remainders of that Taylor craft to, to the airport and, and, and sawzalled it up or yeah. however you dismantle something like that. Yeah. 
that is pretty sneaky stuff. Yeah. So I think you know there is a there is going to be jail time. Also, I it's we were talking about you know this video has three million views. So does he get to keep the money from that? I, I would I would hope not. That's the story does say he can get a fine as well, which would you know, I think override any sort of yeah uh, any sort of money he's going to make from this video, but. Obviously, this is like it's it's so clear that this is just a stupid thing to do. You know, not just the video, but then of course, like covering up the the crime essentially, which is even stupider. But the larger point for the rest of us who don't do outwardly stupid things is, you do have to be careful what you post online and the videos you post online because it absolutely can be used against you. That's right. Don't think that you're going to be be able to be sneaky and and get away from the eyes of the law, especially in such a high profile case like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ian. We've wrapped up uh, stupid pilot tricks. Let's talk about some interesting technology that might help us out of some potential safety challenges. Welcome to the program. Robert Rose is CEO and co-founder of Reliable Robotics, also a pilot. Robert, we've been trying to get in touch with you for a couple of years. I'm glad you have the time today. Tell us a little bit about your aviation background. Well, thank you. I really am honored to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So my, my aviation background. Well, when I was growing up, I used to hear stories about my grandparents. I had two grandfathers that flew in World War II. One was an instructor pilot down in Florida, um, and he had an accident in the Everglades while uh, teaching uh, in a, I think it was a T2 Texan. And then uh, my other grandfather on, on my, my dad's side of the family flew in World War II as a bomber pilot and did, uh, I believe, B-24 missions. And then afterwards flew in Korea. He flew transport aircraft in Korea. And I heard a rumor, and there's a picture of him in front of an F-100, so we're not exactly sure. We think he may or may not have flown that aircraft briefly into Mexico. Um, so I grew up hearing all of this. My, my dad did aircraft maintenance in Vietnam. He was an aircraft maintenance oh, okay. officer, worked on so you, so you had aviation in your family for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and then um, my mom, when I was in high school, she decided she was going to get her private pilot's license. And so I have a lot of fond memories in high school of sitting next to my mom while she was studying for the knowledge test and getting ready for the, the practical. And, and then after she got her license, we'd go flying together and, you know, go, go hop over the mountains to, to get a hamburger, you know, that, that thing. And, and then she got involved in civil air patrol because that's a, a good way to, to maintain your flying skills and, so, and, and build some hours. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I'd go with her on search and rescue missions. And I ended up, I was officially part of CAP for about a year or so. And I really enjoyed working the radios and doing the ground operations. I thought that was a lot of fun. And I, I knew then like one day I would want to be, I'm going to become a pilot too. But then I started looking at how expensive it was and uh, those dreams were dashed pretty quickly. <laughs> oh yeah. That's happened to a few of us. 
But you came out the other end, you got your private pilot certificate. What year was that? So that was about two or three years ago now. So oh, great, great. fast forward, let me quickly go through some of my history. I Well, I was going to ask you about your background in not just aviation, but in aerospace. But let me let me let our podcast listeners know why we're talking to you. Because Reliable Robotics has been uh, in the industry since, I think, 2017. In 2020, y'all first came to our attention because you did a remote flight in a Cessna 172. I believe it was the first of its kind at that point. And you are now working with NASA and the FAA on ways to have collision avoidance using autonomy. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's why we're talking to you, Robert. But, okay, tell us a little bit about your background. We got you into aviation, but I kind of jumped over your time with SpaceX and Tesla. I ended up getting into aerospace engineering and safety critical systems development at at SpaceX and then Tesla. And then right before starting this company, I mean, it was part of the reason I started this company was I, I was at a stage in my career where I could now afford to take flying lessons. Okay. And so I, I got in a plane and in a 172R, I believe, with a, a six pack and um, with carb heat and all of that. And and I was just shocked at how antiquated is not the right word. That, that's not really fair. But I was shocked at how little avionics systems in that aircraft had advanced. And it was there was very little automation at that point, yeah. uh, even three, you know, four or five years ago. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of change in the past couple of years. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. A six pack and most likely in the, the R model, maybe you did or didn't have an autopilot. If you did, it was pretty rudimentary. It was the, the Cap 140, I believe. And uh-huh. you know, I had this expectation that. Oh, you know, you do the takeoff and then you engage the autopilot and, you know, that that flies you around. And and I remember thinking about I was really distracted thinking about this on my this was my first flight in probably 20 years. And we're on the the approach. And by, by this point, too, I'd had hundreds of hours of time in simulation. And I think your listeners might appreciate, too, that I, I had this problem of I was I kept looking at the uh, the panel. And I was just flying by instruments and the instructors kept yelling at me like, look out the window, look out the window. Absolutely. <laughs> been, been there, done that. Absolutely. Yes. So we're on, we're on approach and I'm just completely distracted by thinking, God, why isn't this automated? This just seems like it's, it's a complicated problem for a human, but um, this is the type of thing that automation can handle really well. We're, we're tracking center line and we're maintaining our airspeeds and, you know, we could write a controller that does this. And the last thing I remember is the, pilot um, going flare, 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 and then my airplane. <laughs> oh my goodness. Not unlike some of the experiences that I've had, actually. I've, I've actually got hit over my uh, head by my instructor in the back seat of a PA-18. So yeah. 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 Too low. So you're too low. Whap. Yep. Okay. So, so you had to figure there's a better way to do yes. this. You had, yeah. that had to be going through your mind. And so that, that kicked off this whole evening and weekend passion project exploration of, okay, well, why don't we have more automation in aircraft? And uh, I ended up reconnecting with some friends and former colleagues, now co-founder from SpaceX, Jörg Freifel. And we got to talking about this. And he, his dad was a glider pilot instructor when he was a kid, and he did glider stuff when, when he was younger. So we got to talking about the state of automation and aviation. And then we started researching the regulations and talking with folks in the FAA about this. And long story short, we we decided that somebody needs to start a company that's just focused on putting advanced automation systems into aircraft. And 
you know, we have this long-term goal of eventually going to remote piloting and air quotes, fully autonomous systems. But, you know, on the way to get there, there's a lot of safety enhancements that you can make to existing aircraft operations that would be very meaningful products that would save lives. And so that's, it's essentially what we're doing now. So really the long-term goal, we're looking at automation, but we're looking at making uh, aviation safer. And I really like what you just said about saving lives. That's critical. Listen, uh, there, we've had several mid-airs this past year. Aviation has, has been, GA aviation has been safer in the past couple of years than it has in the past due to things like angle of attack indicators and, and a lot of the higher tech avionics that we have access to that you didn't have access to when you started flying. But nonetheless, it's uh, notable that there have been several mid-airs and in the airport environment uh, to boot, which is just kind of how they happen. Yeah, I got to I got to say ADSB I think is a is a huge safety benefit for pilots and uh I wish the equipage mandate went further. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Let me ask you about that right now because one of the I I don't want to say it's one of the suppositions but one of the I guess one of the pillars that, uh, that, and I'm looking at the latest uh, news article that, that was about reliable robotics and w- how you work with NASA. One of the pillars is the assumption that all aircraft have to have a reliable ADSB. That could be that could be a problem. I mean, we have ag airplanes that are older ag airplanes that don't have any newer ones have GPS, and it's just the amount of automation is incredible. But We've got, you know, Piper J3 Cubs that don't even have electrical systems. So how do we deal with that? So we have the technology. We can make low-cost ADSB transceivers that could potentially even be battery powered. Okay. You know, there's there's a number of manufacturers that make really, really low-cost ADSBNs. And, you know, if, if you know what you're doing... It's, it's not legal, but you can buy software-defined radios uh, at home. And for like $10, you could build an ADS-B out. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's not that much hardware. And you could build a certifiable version of that that's battery-powered for, I mean, it would be more expensive than that, but it would be affordable. And, you know, I, I see some of these mid-airs that are out at untowered airports that have been in the news lately where, you know, it's the classic one pilot's going into the sun, the other one's descending on approach. Yeah. It's just, it's physically impossible to see each other. Like there's no, there's no way they could have even seen each other looking out the window. Right. And neither of them had ADSB out, but you can get ADSB in systems for a couple hundred bucks. You know, you can plug it into an iPhone or an iPad. And, and I've got ADS-B one. In. Absolutely. I've been flying with one for a number of years. You're right. $200. In fact, yeah. you can make them for you initially made them for less money than that if you bought the parts. Yeah. So now that's interesting supposition. So you answer one question, which I had, which was key. Older aircraft that don't have electrical systems, there's technology that would enable us, or hopefully there will be technology that will enable us to have a battery-powered ADSB out system to broadcast where an aircraft would be. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem a far stretch to me. Yeah. And then, I mean, the benefits of that, yeah, I think are tremendous. And I think anybody, I'm sure your listeners that have ADSB in in their aircraft, you know, ask them if you hear somebody talking on the radio, where do your eyes go first? Oh, yeah. I, I know they're supposed to go out the windscreen. Right. <laughs> go to your iPad. But, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're glancing down real quick. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Well, well that, you're right about that. And the other thing that's, that's interesting, as you know, as a pilot, the other thing that's interesting is that when you hear, the reports, I, if you're listening, if I've got flight following and I'm listening and uh, to ATC, I'll hear other pilots and I'll try to figure out where they are. 
And then spotting them is, is it's a hit and miss deal. I mean, it's like sometimes I'll physically see them and, and sometimes not. And that to me is a, a big gotcha because it just goes to show you how many aircraft there are out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about automation and the Cessna 172, November 256 uh, Golf Papa. It's a Cessna 172 that that y'all flew either late 2019 or early 2020, but the story that I that I initially saw was in 2020. Tell me about that aircraft and how you guys and your avionics techs had it outfitted and what made you decide to go that route? Yeah, so the background here, when we started the company, we wanted to we wanted to focus our safety enhancements on an aircraft that would I guess, maximally benefit from advanced automation. And um, the caravan stood out as uh, a, a really great opportunity given it's, it's already single pilot, single engine, IFR, a lot of nighttime operations. This, this is already some of the, the riskiest flying in commercial aviation. And so in, any safety enhancement to that vehicle would be very beneficial. But we're a small company. Like we, we literally started the company in my garage. Okay. And and getting all of the infrastructure associated to do a project on a caravan from day one is, is a big lift, pun intended. And so we we decided to um, pivot to working on the Cessna 172 first under a naive assumption that it would be lower cost and simpler. It turned out to be a lot lower cost. Um, it actually, now looking back, was a lot more complicated than the caravan. Interesting. There's not as much space in the 172 to install equipment. Right. <laughs> And there's not a lot of structure to react forces. And that's a good point, right? When you when you build up an avionics panel in that 172, if you cut the wrong part of the panel, you've just deemed the aircraft unairworthy. You're cutting a structure, yeah. Right. <laughs> that little uh, flimsy piece of aluminum—that's right. structure. It is. Um, it is absolutely. Yeah. So that was challenging then figuring yes. out that, that in the 172. Plus, it didn't have that many uh, systems in the way of automation. You know, everything is is pretty much manual. Uh, you know, you've got uh, pulleys and you've got, you know, cables. Which is a double-edged sword. I mean, it's good because there's not a lot of, like, really advanced stuff there that you need to worry about touching. It's, it, it's a piston engine with cable pulleys. And what we ended up doing was we installed a, uh, we call a two-channel redundant autopilot. So we had two actuators on each of the primary flight control surfaces, aileron, elevator, and rudder. And then we had two actuators running the throttle. We didn't deal with mixture because we knew we were going to deal with the caravan. And so we didn't want to spend too much time on the engine. Oh, I understand. That makes sense because the caravan doesn't need that kind of babying. It's a you know, turbine, right? Yeah. Um, so we had two flight computers and then there was a switchover computer that we used to uh, ping pong back and forth between the primary and the backup string. So we started that program officially. The aircraft showed up in the hangar January of 2018. And then we started doing flight tests in February. And then by the end of the year, I think it was December of that year, we, we demonstrated a parking spot to parking spot mission. So. Uh, there's a video on our website where the aircraft at Echo 16 San Martin Airport, just south of here, taxis out to the runway, takes off, does a lap in the pattern, comes back, and then taxis back to the parking spot. And then uh, listen, that was shuts that off. was big news that back then. And, and I want to give people your website. It's reliable.co, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we thought so folks can watch that video. Right. Um, yeah, and there, we have a YouTube channel too with, with some of this stuff. Raw, uncut 
aviation footage. <laughs> okay, okay. But that was significant developed back then in, uh, in you said in 2018, 2019. And so uh, that was working on the 172, and that was astounding at the time. In fact, that's when we tried to start tracking you down. Yeah, so we, we spent a couple months after that. We got the FAA to approve an uncrewed operation um, in 2018 uh, using our dual channel system. And then we finally got comfortable taking the pilot out of the aircraft in September of 2019. So it was about nine months from when we built it all to when we were comfortable pulling the pilot out. And we, we did all of this analysis on and a lot of flight tests on what happens if the engine fails, what happens if GPS fails, what happens if one of our IMUs fails, and a lot of planning and, and simulation around emergency scenarios for where the aircraft would attempt to touch down if, if it couldn't make the runway. And uh, another fun fact, too, is you know, we got the FAA approval, but then we had to deal with the insurance company and getting insurance approval to do something like this. Is, <laughs> yeah, it's a stretch. It's, uh, yeah, it's especially challenging when you're a small company. And that's a heavy lift. That's, to use one of your that's clients. a heavy lift. Yes. Okay. So, but, so you got through that though. Yes. And there's video documentation of that and, and it was astounding. So, so someone on the ground was controlling the aircraft, clearly. Yes. There was no like remote rudder or yoke or anything. Um, we had a point and click interface that was pretty rudimentary. On that system, basically the pilot was given a menu of options. We, we tried to automate as much as we possibly could. So any like normal emergency within the airplane would be handled by the automation. That, that's, that's been our design philosophy from the beginning, but there's always contingencies that could be outside of the aircraft where you want a human involved in the decision-making process, like simple things like, you know, a Piper Cub flies into the airport and they don't have an electrical system and there's no radio and they're not talking and, you know, we can clearly see them. Well, then we would need to divert our plane to, um, to do some station keeping. Oh, right. Or maybe fly some 360s until exactly. the area is clear. Yeah. So we actually had a button that was do a 360 and it would just do a 360. We had another to like extend your downwind kind of thing. And then we had another one, which was just to abort the land and go around. And then it would just climb back up to pattern altitude and stay in the pattern. The other main contingency where we felt this would be important is if something happened on the runway. So this is a public use airport. You don't have wildlife that often, but you know, you could have a coyote or deer or something come out yeah. on the runway. And so we'd have to, that'd be like one reason to punch the go around button. Sure. Well, and so you have contingencies, someone on the ground. So humans are needed and clearly even still moving up to the, to the caravan, Humans are needed for pre-flight, for fueling, yes, programming, yeah, that kind of thing. Yes. So, are you looking at uh, aviation job creation? Yes, yes. Or, thank you, thank you for, thank you for saying or, that. Or the flip side, elimination, and because this is for pilots, this is really important. You know, we've got a shortage right now of of pilots and technicians, but there are a lot of people that might have aged out uh, or or had. So other challenges where they can't be in a cockpit and maybe they could fly from a desk. Well, so a couple of things I would highlight first, this industry, we toss around the word autonomy too much. It's a very popular word and I, I don't feel like it really describes what we're doing at Reliable. I, I prefer to just say it's, it's advanced automation and it's really just taking what we already have a few steps further is, is really all it is. I think this future where aircraft are 
truly autonomous where they, they do everything with zero human involvement is decades away for some of the reasons that I just described, like some, some of these contingencies, I think you're always going to want a human being involved in the decision process. And as long as there's one person up there who has the capability to fly an aircraft without a radio, you know, the, the cub without an electrical system, for example, you're going to need another human being because they're going to understand what that cub is likely to do. And I, I don't see ever giving that problem over to, to AI or whatever. So that's one part. Okay. Well, that was a, that's, a, that's a key point. Yeah, yeah. It, the other thing people need to consider is this change is going to happen very, very gradually. I think it's going to be so slow, it's going to be hard for people to notice. I mean, you'll, you'll look back and you'll think it was quick, but I, I think in the middle of it, it's, it's going to feel very slow. And the advanced automation that we're talking about is going to enter the industry in, a, in very, very slow increments. And so when I think about jobs, I think job creation is the way to put it. Like what, what really is going to end up happening is you're going to have aviation as we know it today. And then you're going to have this other start, this other element that's going to begin and grow, which will be this, this new type of aviation that's creating more and more opportunity, that's creating more jobs, putting more aircraft into the sky. And then, you know, that's, that will eventually, you know, I think grow and expand to be the dominant form of aviation. But I mean, we're talking decades for this transformation. This is not going to be a snap your fingers overnight kind of thing. So pilots don't have to worry right now. That's what you're saying. Well, I think, you know, I appreciate pilots concerns and I'm not a commercial pilot. We've established that, but as someone who does love being an aircraft, I I get it, you know, and, and I, I understand the love of being in an airplane, but piloting in the future, and when I'm, I'm talking about the distant future, it's going to be a different type of job. It's, it's still going to be a very critical, always on, on your game type of activity. You're just not going to be doing it in the plane. And so it'll be a different type of person that's attracted to doing that. And I think air traffic control is a great template. I think in the future, Remote piloting is going to look a lot more like ATC operations. So it'd be sort of a parallel track to, we've got the, the human interface, typical commercial operations that we see now. I guess what we're looking at is perhaps a parallel track, maybe for cargo delivery, overnight delivery, things like that, where you can have some redundant systems and you're, you don't have 150 people behind you. Right. I mean, I'm just guessing. I'm spitballing right now. No, I, I think that's the way it's going to play out. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that is interesting. So it could lead to job creation and not eliminate jobs. Now, the, the hurdles that you have to overcome at Reliable and as a pilot uh, are concerned with, you know, are, are things that the FAA is, is sort of administering, which is airspace and regulations and the technology now that we have that, that y'all have demonstrated and, and others is... I want to say it's more advanced than what we can accommodate right now in the airspace system. Is that fair to say, or am I off track? Well, I think when we're talking about increasing the number of operations by factor 10 or factor 100, then yes. And I don't think that's a stretch to declare that, you know, the airspace system we have today will encounter some limitations if you increase the number of quantity of aircraft by factor 10. But as, as I was trying to describe earlier, I think these changes are going to happen incrementally. And so we're, we're focused on, at Reliable at least, what can be done in the near term to integrate our system into the airspace system that we have today. 
Okay. And so that means, for example, our remote piloting demonstration, the one we were just talking about back in 2019, we had voice comm, we, we had VHF. And, and the way we handled that was, this is people talking to people. The remote pilot has a VHF radio and is talking to surrounding air traffic. And now on our caravan system, what we're doing is we're actually transmitting our voice to the aircraft and then the aircraft transmits it out its own VHF system. So. We have a couple of different paths through our, our data link. We have line of sight. We also have uh, dual redundant satellite communication. Uh, so we can record messages and then stream them basically to the aircraft. And so this, this allows you to integrate within to the existing airspace the same way pilots do today. So you're using the same tools that we have right now. Yeah. And okay. this, this is all IFR talking on the radio. This is normal stuff. Gotcha. Hey, real quick, I want to remind our listeners that one reason we are talking to you today, Robert, is that you recently did some testing with, with NASA, and we were talking a little bit about this uh, earlier. We hit it just really on a, on, a, on a top level, but you were looking at using primary surveillance radar. I love, the, I love all the abbreviations, PSR. But the point is, is that you're working with NASA's advanced air mobility campaign mm -hmm. to do this this scene avoid type technology but using it as a little bit more of automation and computer automation i'm just wondering if you could explain what this what this test was about and and how that came about and, and what we're hoping to to show yes so um pilot pilots will know 91 113 the pilot shall maintain well clear and yield right away so that's that's the big rule that you need to comply with whether you're a manned aircraft or an unmanned aircraft. And within the industry, there's still some ambiguity as to how exactly we should solve this problem. Or ambiguity isn't, one of the, isn't the right word. I'd say there's a lack of overall consensus. And there's some standards that have been proposed, but none have been formally adopted yet. So, you know, you could attack this with camera systems, you could have radar systems, you could have LIDARs, you know, there's a whole bunch of different solutions that have been proposed which are basically sensing solutions on board the aircraft. When we started looking at this problem, we thought, well, how do air traffic controllers do this on an IFR flight plan? It's a combination of ground radars, which are the primary surveillance radars, PSRs, along with other surveillance broadcast mechanisms like ADS-B. If you take the ground radar and the ADS-B and the transponder, those are combined into secondary surveillance radar. And that's, that's the main thing that air traffic controllers use. Uh, so they, they get the blips and they get annotated blips. And so it sort of, hel sort of helps them fine tune where the aircraft is, where it's going, its altitude. Exactly. Now, there are limitations on that because I know I, on my little tri-pacer, I put in a, an ADSB system that might not be the most reliable in the world. And uh, I frequently hear, oh, yeah, you're squawking 1200 when your code is 4567. So we still have issues like this. Yes. So, so that's actually, yeah, that's why we started looking at ways to augment the data because it's, it, it's, it's going to be challenging. It may be possible, but I, I think it would still be very challenging to build a safety case around ADSB for, you know, your example is perfect that many ADSB out systems are not developed to the level of reliability that would be necessary to use them as a primary sense and avoid mechanism. So you got to aug augment this with something else. And so oh, gotcha. we then okay. looked at, well, the United States taxpayer has already paid for some pretty sophisticated ground surveillance equipment all across the country. And it's not perfect. There are gaps in, in U.S. radar capability, but 
especially right. along the northern and the southern borders. Like we have incredibly high resolution radar sensing capability. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Thank you for for quantifying that. <laughs> I recently flew over the Rockies in that tripacer, and I can attest that there are gaps in in some of the coverage. Yeah, and you see this in you know in IFR charts. Uh, yeah. you know you can see that you know you're. I forgot the term. We we're just talking about instrument readiness before we we pressed record, but. You know, there are gaps in the charts where the controller is not guaranteed to see you. So, and it, and it requires the pilot to respond and give a position and yeah, report where you are. Right. Exactly. So, anyway, um, long long way of saying you know, this test with NASA was about characterizing primary surveillance radar performance for the purposes of ninety one one thirteen detect and avoid compliance. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, long, long way of saying it. So we, we ran a whole bunch of different encounter tests and NASA was recording the surveillance radar data and then we're combining that with the telemetry from our aircraft so we can compare the performance and then start to run some scenarios for, okay, well, what if, what if that data was actually given to the remote pilot? Is it sufficient and do they have enough alerting time? Uh, to be able to instruct the aircraft to perform an avoidance maneuver. Understood. And so uh, thank you for explaining that because augmenting what we already have now, using some of the tools that are available to ATC as we have it now, that's, that does seem like that would be adding to the safety package rather than yes. trying to do something new and different. Yes. Excellent. Very cool. That is pretty exciting stuff. And you just recently did that. Now, listen, I also know that you either provided a letter or spoke personally to a House Subcommittee on Transportation. Tell us a little bit about that. And that was recent. Yeah, we've been promoting a couple of different things with members of Congress lately. So one is about this primary surveillance radar data, and it's about unlocking the taxpayer value that we've, we've these investments that we've already made. Because our preliminary analysis and some reporting that we've done, and we're also, it's not just NASA, we're also working with uh, some folks at MIT Lincoln Labs on this as well. Okay. There's there's a lot that we can do to improve aviation safety today if this data were released to private operators. Now, there are some national security concerns here, and I got to mention that, that, you know, we don't want, we don't want bad people having real-time access right. to all of the U.S. radar data. That could be a problem. Yep. And so we're going to have to time box and geofence this data so that people can't track Air Force One, for example. I understand. So that's one well, one aspect. We've also been pushing the ADSB equipage mandate out a little bit further. So perhaps restarting the rebate program. A lot of folks waited right up until the end, and then things just kind of ended. And yeah. I got to mention this too because I, I think this is a little a little scary. You know, we have the equipage mandate where. We're, when you're within the mode C veil, you're supposed to have ADSB out. Yep. Some folks at MIT Lincoln Labs just published a paper, uh, or maybe it's not out yet. They're, I'd have to go check. But they showed that somewhere between 10 and 15% of aircraft in the Boston area who are supposed to have ADSB out don't actually have ADSB out. Well, that's interesting because probably, I don't know if you're like me, but I look at, at, at aircraft for sale just to see what the market's looking like. And, you know, I'm always dreaming a lot of aircraft don't have ADSB out capability. And you see that in the ads because it's specifically called out. Yeah. So, uh, and now I'm, I'm not to say whether they are in or not in the, the, the Mozi Veil, but nonetheless, 
we should not assume that all aircraft have that capability just because we live in a population center like i'm on the east coast you're on the west coast most people probably do yeah have that capability but that is not the case in the middle of the country or in the in the rocky mountain region and in some other rural areas. Yep. So that's that's another thing. I, I'm also a, a major proponent of an ADSB in mandate for large transport category aircraft. I think it's a bit nuts that Part 121 operators are not required to have ADSB in. And I'm not going to mention specifics, but we've had some near misses recently, and it makes you wonder: Could these have potentially been prevented with ADSB in? And also, I, I think too the FAA needs funding for pushing automated alerting and guidance that makes better use of ADSB uh, technology and, and other surveillance mechanisms, because I think there's a lot we can do there to prevent near misses. You know, that is an interesting point that you just brought up. When you have that kind of technology, there, there's got to be a way to utilize it and then and turn the, turn the aircraft, both aircraft, you know, to the right or some something and uh, do some, you know, do some augmented miss you know type maneuvers so i mean there are there are technologies like acas and and those systems that that are moving in this direction but the standards have not gone far enough to support all types of aircraft operations and i i think we as a nation should be making more investments there well and in the united states we we are, we do like to say that we have the most advanced airspace system in the world and and one of the safest if not the safest airspace system in the world. We can't rest on our laurels. Uh, right. You're never done well, with safety. Good. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> moving ahead with, with technology is always a good thing. Listen, Robert, I know we uh, maximized your time today. We hit some of the highlights here. It sounds like you've used a lot of your uh, background from, from Tesla or from the space launches to get some of this technology, at least in your mind, and, and gather you know good people around you to kind of move ahead with that automation. On the automation front, Let's look a little bit at, before we dismiss, let's look at eVTOLs and what might be happening in that, in that airspace and how some of your technology might augment that. Have you thought about that a little bit? Oh, definitely. I mean, that, that was something that we thought about before starting the company. I mean, we, um, I attended the first Uber Elevate and read the first Elevate paper. And you know, I've been following Mark Moore and the work that he did at NASA going back you know, to probably 10, 15 years ago now. And was definitely caught up in the I don't know that this this romanticized future of of uh, autonomous uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And my my conclusion was for these systems to really be scalable and to make sense, then they have to be they have to at very least be remotely piloted. Probably have to be fully autonomous. And so if we're going to get there, there's a lot of technology that needs to be developed along the way. And so I mean our our roadmap at Reliable almost exactly reflects what we think the the incremental steps are going to be with aviation technology to get to that future. Um, and if I may real quick, I mean, step one for us is you got to have high precision navigation that is certified for auto landing and auto takeoff, which is something we don't have today in really in any aircraft, unless you're talking like a, a Cat 3C ILS system, which requires multi, multi-million dollar infrastructure at the airport. You can't there's no system in a plane today that will give you like sub-centimeter accuracy. And so we need we need high precision navigation. We need certified auto land for small aircraft. We need certified auto takeoff. We need certified auto taxi. All of these things are directly applicable to EV tolls. Okay. Because um, once you have a decision height zero auto land capability for a fixed wing aircraft, uh, which is what we're doing for the caravan, 
then you can start to talk about a certified decision height zero auto land for a helicopter, which is not a thing today, by the way. And then you can start to talk about doing that with an eVTOL. And the eVTOL too, I mean, the, the procedures for auto landing and eVTOL are going to be crucial because battery management, hover is the most, is the, is the least efficient portion of phase of flight for right. those aircraft. And so this is going to be a much sharper glide angle approach for many of those vehicles. And it's, it's going to be, it's not quite going to be the SpaceX landing rocket, but it, you know, it's going to be a, and then finally okay. a touchdown. You're going to need very, very high precision systems to be able to do that. That makes sense. So we're, we're working on this technology now. We're working on getting it certified for use in, in small fixed wing aircraft. And then all of the uh, fly-by-wire and contingency management, the remote communications link we talked about earlier, the detect and avoid, all of this stuff is, is going to uh, be directly applicable to eVTOL operations. And bring it back to general aviation operations, part 23 ops that, that you and I are familiar with. And know that you're an instrument student. We talked about prior to recording. Of course, I am too, long time. But look, one of your avionics specialists, uh, Matt, I probably mispronounced his last name, Nirens, on the uh, video at reliable.co, he said that the company is, is trying to build a system that can auto land a Part 23 aircraft at any airport. Mm-hmm. That, to me, sounds like a major safety advantage. Now, Garmin has... Autoland technology in a select few aircraft right now. That's based on you need to have the Garmin avionics in your aircraft, and it has to be an aircraft of, of a certain you know level. So tell me a little bit about the dream or or sort of the prospect of having um, an Autoland in a Part 23 aircraft like that 172 that you fly. Yeah, so I, I got to give Garmin credit. I mean, the the emergency auto land is a huge safety benefit mm-hmm. for small airplanes. Um, the challenge there is it's only certified for emergency use. Okay. It's not certified for normal use. Okay. And what we're working on is certifying auto land in a twenty part twenty three aircraft for normal use, which is something I would like to have as a private pilot. Something that happened early in my training after I'd gotten my solo was. I misinterpreted a, um, um, the AWOS and I ended up taking off right into a cloud. And it was one of those things where I was standing on the ground. And if you're not totally familiar with the airport environment, it's hard to see the altitude of, of the clouds. Right. And the AWOS was reporting clear skies. Yeah. And so I, I, thought, I thought those clouds were higher up. But anyway, they moved in quickly. By the time I took off, I was right in a cloud. Well, I was ironically thinking like, shoot, where's my auto land button? I just want to... Get me that. Get me back down on the ground now. Yeah. Okay. I can relate. <laughs> Land now. And and so the the problem is today. You know that's not certified for normal use. So it what it didn't really rise to the my example there didn't really rise to the level of declaring an emergency. I, I ended up basically descending a little bit and not quite scud running. I was still within a, a reasonable pattern altitude, but I, I turned base a lot earlier than I normally would have and, and managed to get the plane back down. I also think about other situations where technology like this would be helpful if you, you know, other situations where you find yourself inadvertently in IMC, just being able to tell the autopilot to, to turn you back around and to execute a perfect 180 and get out of the clouds would be a, a wonderful feature and, and then get you towards an airport. And then if we extend this even further, you know, I could imagine one day if we've got certified auto land and auto takeoff and auto taxi, then 
conceivably, yeah, this is this is in the future here, but you, you could imagine getting your pilot's license without ever demonstrating stick and rudder skills to a pilot examiner. Yeah, yeah. Because when they tell you, you know, you need to touch down within 100 or 200 foot of the uh, point that you're trying to stick, you just punch that into your flight management system and press go. And the DP is going to be like, well, I guess you did it. I love the way um, you're thinking. And, you know, <laughs> I love the outside of the box thinking, but in all seriousness, a lot of pilots, student pilots have a plateau where they are having trouble landing. And if in a perfect world, if there was an auto land type system that would get that, that could in fact, I'm buying into your I'm buying into your vision now that could in fact lead to more pilots in the long run. Yes, yeah. And I and I have to say too, you know, a, a common criticism here and I get it is people go, "Well, well what if, what if the autopilot fails?" And that is the really important point here. Like we are building these systems to an extremely high level of reliability. There's massive redundancy in this system. So we've got three flight computers that are constantly crossbow. It's like the same type of electronics, but actually more sophisticated than, than what you would have in a major jet aircraft, a fly-by-wire system. And so this question of like, well, you know, what if the autopilot fails? Like, well, we've done all of the analysis. It's not going to fail. I mean, I'm an engineer, so I, I could say with a pro to a probability of one in a hundred million hours, it's, it's not expected to fail. And so that's that's how you get to getting these systems certified for normal use. This is really incredible technology, and you guys are just chipping away at the at the outer parts of it. So there seems to be a lot more to come from Reliable, and uh, I hope that we can maintain uh, communications and stay in touch. We sure appreciate you meeting with us here for Hangar Talks. I really appreciate you know you taking time to chat with me and letting me uh, talk about the technology that we're developing at Reliable and, and even touching on our agenda in Congress was great. Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> you got it. Reliable.co for everyone who wants to take a look. And there's some great videos there. I'm going to check out your YouTube channel a little bit more thoroughly for some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And if there's anything we can do for you, Robert, we're here. Um, don't forget, AAPA is here to help you out as well. We got your back. And hopefully our paths across in person at some time in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks again. So, David, I'm really glad you got a chance to talk to Robert. It's a it's a company that's going places, and uh, yeah, I would love I would love for him to be right, and for us to get auto land in airplanes. It's not that I don't like landing, but the additional safety factor I think is just phenomenal, yeah. and would be super cool to have. And Robert's a real pilot. He's a Cessna 172 pilot. He's got good experience with that, and he aligned himself with some really smart engineers, and they really have been thinking through this problem. So. Anything that advances safety in, in my book, anything that does that is great. So yeah. we look forward to hearing more from Reliable Robotics. Yeah. All right. Hey, that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>